Here's an interesting question. It's actually a question that gets asked a lot. What do you think is the biggest threat to the existence of the church today? Just think about that for a minute. What's the biggest threat to the church? There's a lot of answers to that question, right? Everybody's got uh, maybe a different perspective or a different opinion about that. If you asked a foreign missionary, they're going to have probably a very different answer than, than you might have you know, here in this context. Maybe if you asked a foreign missionary what's the greatest threat to the church, they might say something like other cultural and religious influences. Or maybe if you asked somebody who was in a, a difficult place like China or an Islamic country, they might say persecution is the greatest threat to the church. If you came home and you asked people here, What's the greatest threat? Maybe some would say moral decay. Right? We look too much like the world. Or maybe some would say, well, I think television or social media influence on our young people. It's the, the influences on the young generation. We think too much like the world. Maybe others would say breakdown of the family is the greatest threat to the church. In other words, we love too much like the world. Maybe some would point to, to doctrinal things. We worship too much like the world. Maybe some would point to political affiliations. We hope in the same powers as the world. What would you say? What's the biggest threat to the church today? Well, I would say all of the things that I just mentioned are valid answers. They're valid concerns. But they're not the main threat. And that's because I think the Apostle Paul here is going to highlight for us what's the biggest threat to the church? And why do all those other things actually flow out of this threat, the biggest threat to the church in the day? Paul is going to address that concern to a first century context in Philippi. He addresses this concern to other first century contexts in Asia Minor as he travels around. And I would suggest that the context that he's speaking into is not that different from our own. So what we hear him say here is, is very relevant to us as well. We can relate to what he has to say. But I, I would even go further than that and say what he says here is, is really, he's pinpointing the ultimate threat to all churches in all times and places, in every generation, because the threat to the church, the biggest threat to the church, is an attack on the gospel itself. What, what did Jesus really do? What does it really mean to, 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 to be in Christ? What does it look like for us to follow Him? That's what the Reformation was all about, right? It was trying to get the Gospel recovered from a way that it had been, it had been lost. It had been muddied up. And as I said earlier in the service, that's, something, that's a call that we have to continually come back to as a church, Right? What's the good news of, of the Christian faith? It's, it is the gospel, if, if we can keep it, if we can remember it. That's what he's pointing us to. So let, let's look at the text, and let me show you how he brings this out. And the first point this morning is he, he highlights here the problem. And the problem, I'll, I'll put it like this, that religion easily produces enemies of the cross. Now that might be a, a bit of a surprising statement, right? Religion, that seems like that should be a good thing. Well, I'll, I'll highlight the difference between religion and gospel here and point out how he's, he's making this important point. Religion easily produces enemies 
of the cross. Look back down at the text. Look at verse 2. He says, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. And he makes this contrast. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. So he's making this point here that the greatest threat to the church is putting confidence in the flesh as opposed to glorying in Jesus Christ. These are verses that are similar to, again, things that he said to to just about every other church context in the different letters that he's written that make up our New Testament. Corinthians and Galatians in particular have strong parallels here. And, And in all these letters, what Paul is doing is he's going on the offensive against this big threat to the church of the day, and he names it, it's Judaism. Judaism, which... I'll explain in a minute, but the bottom line is it's religion. What was Judaism? Judaism was the belief held by some who were of Jewish ancestry, Jewish religious heritage, who had become Christians, they had professed faith in Christ, but were then teaching in the church that in order to be a true Christian, you needed to follow Jewish customs and traditions, and particularly this practice of circumcision. So if you're going to be identified as the people of God, then you've got to go back to this Old Testament regulation for the Jewish people, which was circumcision. That was an outward identifier that you belonged, right? And they were teaching that that was something that even the non-Jewish believers would have to do. That was a precursor and a sort of a, a, a gauge to whether or not you were really a believer, We've talked about this before. And Paul, Paul wants to say to these people and to those who are in the church who are listening to them, this is false teaching. These are false teachers. You're identifying yourselves with the Christian community, but you're actually threatening the church. Particularly, you're threatening your Gentile brothers and sisters in the church by placing on them a religious burden that holds closely to Old Testament Jewish law. So if we could put this in modern day vernacular, basically we could say Judaism at its core is sort of this fundamentalist religious moralism. It took the form of Judaism in the first church because it was the Jewish believers who were bringing this kind of legalism into the conversation. But it takes place in every generation of every church anytime we have legalists who put external law as a priority over faith in Christ. So they would say, God wants us to be good and obedient. And we should all be able to say to that, amen, we agree with that. God would want us to be good and obedient. But they would then take that and go here. They would say, good and obedient people look a certain way on the outside. And we might say, yeah, But, therefore, we should focus on those external practices and make them the center of what we do. Oh, now we've we've flipped the switch. right? Now we've moved into this legalistic moralism, this religion, 
That's a threat to the gospel. And by the way, here's what makes it so dangerous in the church. Not only is it this misunderstanding of the gospel, but they'll say, and we'll judge your status as a Christian by how well you measure up to that external standard. So in other words, they're saying your righteousness is found in your success in measuring up to an external standard as opposed to your righteousness is found in Jesus Himself. That's, that was what was going on with the Judaizers, and that was what goes on with every religious mindset that is a threat to the gospel. It's essentially this idea that God helps those who help themselves by being better keepers of the law. And the problem, of course, is that the Old Testament law never pointed us in that direction. Not even the law itself pointed us in that direction. The Old Testament law was never put up as something that was meant to produce our righteousness. The Old Testament law was given to God's people as a, as a guide to say, this is what it looks like to live a righteous life. But even in the Old Testament, God made it very clear to His people that your participation in this life is by faith. I'm the one who rescued you out of Egypt. Therefore, live like this. You don't need to look exclusively to the New Testament to see that God's not interested in externals. Let me give you some examples of that. 1 Samuel 15.22 Has the Lord as great a delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? In other words, does He care as much about these external things that you're doing as much as He cares about what's going on inwardly? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen is better than the fat of rams. 1 Kings 8, The Lord our God be with us as He was with our fathers. May He not leave us or forsake us that He may incline our hearts to Him to walk in all of His ways and to keep His commandments. How do we walk in His ways and keep His commandments? Our hearts are inclined to Him. Which He commanded our fathers. Let your heart therefore be wholly true to the Lord our God walking in His statutes and keeping His commandments as at this day. And Jeremiah 4.4 says something that the, the Judaizers really they, they, they clearly missed. Because even as they're putting this emphasis on circumcision, God puts this emphasis on circumcision. Circumcise therefore yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskins of your what? Your heart. Now, if you know anything about circumcision, that's not the foreskin you're removing, right? But God is saying, no, it's, it's a circumcision of the heart. O men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my wrath go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of the evil of your deeds. If you're just doing the external things and, and there's not a circumcision of your heart, you're, 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 you're walking in evil. Isaiah 29, This people draw near with their mouth. They honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me. And their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. It's these, it's these man-made regulations that make us fear God rather than a heart that's truly drawn to Him. God's interested in the heart. God's interested in the heart. And so is Paul. So an attempt to warn the Philippians about this threat of this, this religious Judaism going on in the church, he launches into this description of them that's laden with irony. Look again at the text. Verse 2. He says, Look out for the dogs. 
Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Now, that, that sounds like really harsh language, and it is really harsh language, but I want you to understand what Paul is, is actually doing here. He's, he's actually taking the words of the Judaizers themselves, of the religious people themselves, that they've been hurling against those who aren't following the Old Testament laws. They would call the Gentiles dogs. And so Paul is flipping that on his head and saying, no, you're not the dogs. In reality, they're the dogs. Because what, what, what was behind this, this accusation of being a dog? It was this idea that you were unclean. And so Paul's saying, look, what makes a person clean is righteousness of Christ, not righteousness of works. Therefore, who's the dog? Look out for the evildoers. These ones who in, in this attempt to be holy in their religious practice have actually become guilty of committing evil. They're denying the power of the Gospel. This mutilation, this, this idea of circumcision, their outward ritual of circumcision, he says it missed the point. Remember Jeremiah 4. God, God wasn't interested so much in the external. It was a matter of the heart. They, they missed the point. Without a circumcision of the heart, this practice of circumcising yourself outwardly is nothing more than mutilating your body. It doesn't mean anything. So again, these aren't derogatory comments. They're ironic ones. And the description that he continues to give of these religious people picks up again in verse 18, actually, which is not in our text today. That's for next week. But look ahead. We'll give you a preview. Verse 18. For many of whom I've often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. See what he's saying here? He's saying this, this, this kind of legalism makes you an enemy of the cross and it's, it's not heavenly minded thinking at all. It's of the flesh. It's antithetical to what God has offered to us in the Gospel. And why this is such a threat, why this is so dangerous to the church is because on its surface, it can sound so good. Right? If you, if, if you, if we put all these things in front of us and we say, these are the external things that we need to be looking like in order to have our righteousness, it sounds good because there is an element of goodness to it. It's just, we've got the cart before the horse. It's not to say that God doesn't want us to, to, to keep the law, to follow the statutes and the commandments that He's given to us. In fact, He makes it very clear to do such, a, such things, but not as a means of earning or attaining or keeping our own righteousness. Simply as a means of reflecting the righteousness that He's already produced in us by faith through the cross. It sounds good though. It sounds good. It's easy to get tripped up in that. Where religion goes wrong is that it does what God never did. It separates the commandments from the heart issues that those commandments were meant to address. God always follows up His commandments with heart statements. Do a study. It would be a big study. It would be a long study. But do a study in your Old Testament. Look at what God says when He gives these commandments. And note that. He always follows up these commandments with heart statements. He always makes it clear that the commandments were a shadow of a heart change to come. And if you get that wrong, he says you're an enemy of the cross. Why? Because you make the cross unnecessary. 
If, if, if we can produce our own righteousness by what we do, we don't need Jesus. His death becomes this tragic, needless torture that has no bearing whatsoever on our lives. And remember what I read earlier from Romans chapter 1, where Paul says there, I believe. I believe in the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation. The, the cross of Christ is the power of God for salvation. That's where God deals with sin. That's where righteousness is brought about. If we eliminate our need for that, there's no power in our gospel. We have no gospel at all. Gospelless religion was and continues to be the greatest threat to the existence of the church. That's the main problem. Now, fortunately, Paul doesn't just identify the problem. He also gives a prescription and then a promise. So let's look at those together. Here's the prescription. The prescription should be fairly obvious at this point. We need to cut out self-righteousness. We need to cut out self-righteousness. Remember, we've been talking so much about the end of chapter 1, verse 27. Live in a manner worthy of the Gospel, right? This life that's worthy of the Gospel is a life that's not impressed with itself. Look at verse 3 again. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Now Paul is, is saying, look, this, this, this putting confidence in the flesh, this is what trips you up. And he can say that with confidence here. He can say that with authority because he's one who's walked that road. Look at verses 4-6. through six. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. He said, I, I've lived that life. I've, I've put all this confidence in all of these external things about myself. And I think we should, we should look at that and we should say, what, how can we relate to that? Because these are the kinds of things that we will often say. These are the kinds of things that we'll, put to, we'll look to, putting confidence in the flesh as to why we're okay, why we're righteous before God. I grew up in this church. I serve on the... XYZ ministry team in the church. I went to Moody. I went to Trinity. I studied under some of the best seminary professors, some of the best pastors around. When I ride the train or commute in the morning, I listen to sermons on my podcast. I never miss Sunday school. Heck, I teach Sunday school. I don't smoke. I don't drink. I don't chew. And I don't go with girls who do. I'm a pastor's kid. I'm a missionary kid. I'm a deacon. I'm a pastor. I'm all about the Reformation and Reformed theology. I tithe 10% or more. Notice the similarity in all those statements. They all begin with I. Right? I do this. I do that. Now, again, it's not to say that we shouldn't do those things, or at least some of those things, right? But if the I 
that comes before those things is the basis upon which my righteousness, in my opinion, is held, then I become an enemy of the cross. I don't do those things because I do those things. I can only do those things because of Christ in me and the righteousness that I have in Him. Verse 7. Paul says, no, no. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For His sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and I count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. We could dive into that pretty deeply, but I'll just, I'll just say this. Do you see what he's saying? It's all about Jesus. It's about Christ. We're all on this trajectory towards the judgment throne, right? End of Philippians chapter 2. Every knee is going to bow. Every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. We're all going to stand before the King one day. And the question is, what's going to cause you to stand up there? What will hold up there when you're standing before Jesus on the day of judgment? The answer is, nothing will stand up there apart from your primary confession that it's by faith in what you did, Jesus, that I stand here. And all other things will be weighed in light of that confession. Nothing's of greater importance. We've got to deny self-righteousness and then stand on the one thing that can save us and make us righteous before a holy God. And that is the promise. So this prescription is, all right, your doctor's saying, hey, you need to cut down on the self-righteousness. You need to cut that out of your diet. Right? Here's the, here's the promise. Righteousness is attainable, but only through faith in Jesus. Verse 9. And again, he's just saying he, he wants to gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own, that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. That I may know Him and the power of His resurrection. That I might share in His sufferings. That I might become like Him in His death. That by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul's talking about what, what justifies us. And he says, this is our justification, this righteousness that we have. It is from God. It's by faith that we can't boast in anything else. And we see that, that Paul's not separating this idea of his righteousness and his salvation, his justification from the things that, that he does, the things that we might call sanctification, his growth in Christ. We see, in fact, all facets of salvation laid out here in these verses. We have justification here. We have sanctification here, and we have glorification here. If you look at verse 10, right, I, I might know Him and the power of His resurrection, that I might share in His sufferings, becoming like Him. That's sanctification. That by may, any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. That's glorification. So it's all there. Justification, <laughs> sanctification, glorification. But the point is that they're all apprehended by faith. By faith. The thing that's so crazy about legalism, the thing that's so crazy about the, the, the fact that Paul even has to give this warning 
about the, the, this irony involving and in, in saying, look, these, these people who, who, who should know the Scriptures, these Judaizers, these, they're, they're sort of like these Bible thumpers, right? These people, they missed the whole point of the thing that they say they know so well. They've missed the point of the Old Testament. Remember Jesus' interaction with His disciples after the resurrection, right? Luke chapter 24. I'll put it up here on the screen. And He said to them, O foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all of the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into His glory? So they're, they're asking Jesus about what, what is it that they're seeing here? He, he's, he's died and now He's risen again. They're, they're trying to, to figure it out. And He's saying, didn't, didn't you read your Bible? Didn't you notice that, that everything pointed to this? And it says, in beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the thing concerning himself. If you really understood the trajectory of the Old Testament, you'd see that salvation was by faith and we needed a Savior. Very first time I came to Chicago was in 2007, just briefly. Actually, I wasn't even in Chicago, I was in Deerfield. Um, but I was at a, at a conference up there and I heard Tim Keller give one of the best explanations of this, this that I've ever heard. This idea that if we look to the Old Testament, it, 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 points us, it points us to Jesus. And he used this phrase, Jesus is the true and better blank. And just kind of walked through the Old Testament and showing how if we, if, we, if we read the Old Testament with a lens of looking towards where it was pointing in Jesus, we'd see Jesus all throughout it. And he says this, he says, Jesus is the true and better Adam who passed the test in the garden. His garden, by the way, was a much tougher garden. Adam was in the garden of Eden. Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane. He passed the test in the garden that Adam failed. And his obedience is imputed to us, whereas Adam's disobedience was imputed to us. Jesus is the true and better Abel who though innocently slain, His blood cries out not for our condemnation like it did for Cain, but for our acquittal. Jesus is the true and better Abraham who answered the call of God to leave all of the comfortable and familiar and go into the void not knowing whether He went. Jesus knew exactly where He was going. He's the true and better Isaac who was not just offered up by His Father on the mountaintop, but was truly sacrificed by God for us all. While God said to Abraham, Now I know that you truly love Me because you did not withhold your Son, your only Son whom you love from Me. Now we can say to God at the foot of the cross, Now we know that you love us because you did not withhold your Son, your only Son from us. He's the true and better Joseph who sits at the right hand of the king and forgives those who betrayed and sold him and uses his power to save them. He's the true and better Moses who stands in the gap between the people and the Lord and mediates a new covenant. He's the true and better rock of Moses who struck with the rod of God's justice now gives us water in the desert. He's the true and better Job, the truly innocent sufferer who then intercedes for and saves his friends. He's the true and better David, whose victory becomes his people's victory, though they never lifted a stone to accomplish it for themselves. He's the true and better Esther, 
who didn't just risk an earthly palace, but lost the ultimate heavenly one. He didn't just risk his life, he gave his life. Who didn't just say, if I perish, I perish, but rather when I perish, I'll perish for them to save my people. He's the true and better Jonah who was cast out into the storm so we could be brought in. He's the real Passover lamb. He's the true prophet. He's the true temple, the true king, the true sacrifice, the true light, the true bread. The Old Testament law and prophets were all about Jesus. And they pointed to the Gospel. And they screamed out with the truth that we could not produce our own salvation. But rather by faith, we needed a Savior. We needed faith in the Savior to trust in His work on our behalf. And there's a promise The promise is threaded throughout the entire Scriptures here. It's not explicit here in Philippians 3. It's echoed. It's echoed. And it's called good news. The good news is that Jesus dies for our sin. That Jesus resurrects again. That Jesus is righteous before God because He lived the perfect life that we could not live. And by faith in Him, all of that is applied to us. All of that is applied to us. And it becomes good news when we look at all of those things that the law directs us to do and we can rightly say we should live this way, right? We should have strong families and we should be morally upright. We should have strong character. We should be caring for and loving our neighbors and, and doing all, we should be doing a lot of things. But the good news is that our righteousness doesn't depend on whether or not we do those things well enough because we never do. Our righteousness depends on the One who did it perfectly and now empowers us by faith to live that life. And when we fail, offers us grace because He's paid the penalty for our sin. That's good news. The promise has always been the Gospel And the Gospel has always been received by faith. So can you see why Paul's warning is so crucial? Religion is the greatest danger to the existence of the church because religious moralism is an affront to the Gospel. It stands as an enemy of the cross. It takes away our need for faith without which we have no hope. It removes grace altogether from the equation and makes everything about performance. What's the application then for us? This is I hope everything I've said today isn't new, right? These are the things that we we, we ought to know. The application is Do we proclaim this to ourselves? Do we preach the Gospel to ourselves daily? Are we, as Paul would say, walking then in a manner worthy of the Gospel? Look at verse 12. And I'll I'll, I'll end with this. Because I I want us to see here that that Paul is basically saying, this is what I do. I, I, I preach this message to myself every day. He says, not that I've already obtained this, or I'm already perfect. 
but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Right? So he, what's he pointing us here to? Look, look, live this way. Live, live in a manner worthy of the gospel. Don't get, don't get caught up on the externals, but, but think about all these things that I've said to you already. Go back to chapters 1 and 2 and, and, and look through this. There's this tremendous call that we have to love one another, to serve one another, to empty ourselves, right? There's, a, there's, a, there's action involved in that. There's grace-driven effort, effort involved in all that. And he's saying, I haven't attained that. My sanctification is still going on. And I, and I, and I strive. I, I, I continue on. I'm pursuing this. I haven't obtained it yet. But, but, I do that not to make it my own, but because Christ has made me His own. So we got to preach the Gospel to ourselves every day. We've got to look at a, at a church that, that, that's of course going to be flawed. And, and yet rather than laying a judgment on each other because we're not meeting a certain standard of righteousness, apply a, the grace needed to cover our sin and produce in us the righteousness that only God can produce. That's what makes a church flourish. Moralism and religion kills a church. It kills faith. It'll kill you. I'm going to close with a quote from Jerry Bridges in his book, The Discipline of Grace. He says, the glory that has a transforming effect on us. What, in other words, what, what really makes you more righteous? What, what changes your life? How, how does the external stuff actually change for the better? The glory that has a transforming effect on us is the glory of Christ revealed in the gospel. The good news that Jesus died in our place as our representative to free us not only from the penalty of sin, but also from its dominion. A clear understanding and appropriation of the gospel which gives freedom from sin's guilt and sin's grip is in the hands of the Holy Spirit a chief means of sanctification. In other words, he's saying it's not that we're not growing. It's not that we're not doing things. That's, sanctification is that. But the means of that is this recognition of the freedom that we have through Christ. Our specific responsibility in the pursuit of holiness then is to behold the glory of the Lord as it is displayed in the Gospel. The Gospel is the mirror through which we now behold His beauty. One day, we shall see Christ not as in a mirror, but face to face. Then we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. That's 1 John 3. But until then, we must preach the Gospel to ourselves every day. So my departing question to you is this. Are you applying that? Are you doing that? Can we help each other to do that? That's how the church will grow. So Father, we ask You for Your help in this. Thank You for Your Son. Thank You that, that, that our righteousness is not something we would earn. Because Lord, we all know that we can't do it and yet at the same time, Lord, we, we try so hard so often, and, and I, wonder, I wonder how often it is that, that we detach ourselves from You and from one another even. Because we've, we've been trying to do that, we've been trying to hold ourselves to the standard, and we failed, and we've just condemned ourselves. 
Or maybe, maybe worse, Lord, maybe we've felt condemnation from somebody else who's laid that standard upon us. Oh Lord, forgive us for that. Lord, help us to, to understand that we're saved by faith. Help us to understand the good news of the grace of Christ. Help us to understand that the righteousness that He produces in us is a far better righteousness. Because it really is righteousness. It's not self-righteousness. It's Your righteousness. And I pray, Lord, that that would compel us then to live lives that are exceedingly moral and exceedingly loving, exceedingly uh, examples in a world that, that sees decay. We don't want to look like the world. We don't want to love like the world. We don't want to worship like the world. We want to do all those things as You've designed and intended for us. But, but oh Lord, we know we're only going to get there when we, when we truly trust in Christ. When He's our righteousness. So thank You for the reminder yet again this morning. Help us to live in a manner worthy of the Gospel. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.